Um, we're jumping back now into the book of Acts. Um, most people love uh, a good, like, thrilling story, and, and maybe, maybe you get yours in the form of a book or a movie or whatever. Most of us are, are more intrigued by a story when it's a true story. So what we're looking at here in the book of Acts is one of the, I think, most intriguing, thrilling, true stories uh, in the history of the world. Uh, and if you recall, the book of Acts is actually a sequel. So the book of Acts is written by uh, Luke, who was a doctor and historian, whom God called to give an orderly account of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Holy Spirit inspires Luke to, to, to get all of these eyewitness accounts and to write these words, which is called, named after the author, the Gospel of Luke. So that's book number one in the series. And then book number two in the series is the book that we've been looking at for a while now as a church. That is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about how the work of Jesus that was, that was uh, laid out in the Gospel of Luke, how the work of Jesus now continues, even though in chapter one of this book. So the sequel starts with Jesus, the main character, ascending into heaven. But he does that with a promise saying that the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is about how the work of Jesus continues through Holy Spirit empowered believers who proclaim the gospel in those places. So the book's kind of divided up in that way. So chapters 1 through 7, which we covered uh, in early 2020, you remember early 2020, we were going through chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts. Roughly what's happening there is the gospel, which is believed by a small number of people in the city of Jerusalem, starts to go out and hundreds, even thousands of people in that city hear the gospel and are born again through faith in Jesus. So the church greatly expands in one city. And then as we moved on to chapters 8 through 12, which we covered um, early on in 2021, is the story of how the gospel then expands to the areas of Judea and Samaria. So we see it's happening. What Jesus said was going to happen is happening. His Holy Spirit-empowered disciples are sharing the gospel, and it is expanding from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now... As we turn to chapter 13, we're going to see how the gospel begins to spread to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 13 through about chapter 18 is what we would call Paul's first and second missionary journeys. We're going to cover those from now until November 7th. And then our custom is that we go through something in the Old Testament in the weeks leading up to Christmas to prepare us for Christmas. We're going to be going through kind of the Old Testament covenants uh, in those six weeks. And then in January, we'll come back to finish the rest of the book of Acts. We'll get that done with that before Easter, covering Paul's third missionary journey and the journey to Rome. Uh, I love this book. I'm really looking forward to getting back into it now. Got to study it again a little bit this week. Uh, and what I love is just seeing how God is always faithful to accomplish what he said he was going. That, 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 he, that Jesus said he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you get to see all throughout this book. Like you get to the end of chapter 7 and, and the gospel still mostly stuck in Jerusalem. And we're wondering how is it going to get out to Judea and Samaria? Do you remember how it gets out to Judea and Samaria? 
one of the faithful witnesses, one of the believers, proclaims the gospel, and the leaders in Jerusalem take him out and throw rocks at him until he dies. And that causes the other believers to say, maybe this isn't the safest place to live. And so they scatter, and that's how the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. And now it's in Judea and Samaria, but Jesus said it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, how's it going to get there? In chapter 12, we saw one of Jesus' disciples put to death, executed by the sword, and another one imprisoned. It doesn't seem like, you know, it's not like some great growth strategy. If you're thinking, oh, okay, so how, is, how are we going to grow the church from here to here to here? You know, in our day, we're like, well, how do you grow the church? Well, you get, you get a, a good, like, hip pastor who, who preaches relevant sermons. Maybe there's some, some video clips. we got to have a fog machine, and we got to have a worship team so the Holy Spirit can, like, we got to have some cool strategy, right? And that's not how the church expands. The church expands in a much different way, and we're going to see that as we jump now into the book of Acts, starting here in chapter 13. You look at the big idea for today. Oh, by the way, inside your bulletin uh, is a little sermon notes page. Uh, if it's helpful for you to take notes, uh, remember, preaching is not primarily about getting out information. I'm getting out information, but there's not a quiz on this. You know, like, but if it's helpful for you to write things down that you might get them more stuck in your head, then by all means do it. Uh, but if you need to just sit and listen, that doesn't mean you're less of a Christian than the guy next to you who's taking notes, okay? Um, not a contest. But here's what we have today. Some are sent to be missionaries, and God's power will be revealed as they proclaim the Word of God. If you're able to, would you stand as we read God's Word? Let's pray first. Oh, Father, it's been good to be together to sing of your power and holiness and might. And even as we sang in the first song, I'm grateful that you not are, are, not, are not only mighty, but also merciful. You are holy, holy, holy. And we have no right to be in your presence, so we don't come on our own. We have no right to be hearing your word and still standing. But we are people who are in awe of what you have done for us in sending your Son who lived the life we failed to live and died the death we deserved to die and rose again with victory over sin and death so that we can be in your presence. What a gift. And I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who who dwells in all of us who believe, your Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write these words, your Holy Spirit who was clearly at work in the first century church, and your Holy Spirit who's at work in the 21st century in this little church in Iowa Falls, Iowa. What a privilege. Be at work now for our good, for the good of others, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So God's word says this, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, 
they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Just for a little bit of context, I want to look back at just the last verse of chapter 12, because it's been a few months since we've been there. But in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, we would have read and looked at this last. It said, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, they had been in Antioch, but they went to do some business in Jerusalem, now are just returning back to Antioch. The interesting thing that's happening here is that Jerusalem, that had kind of been the place where all throughout the Bible, like God's people would be away from Jerusalem, and the goal was always, let's get back to Jerusalem. What's starting to happen now in the book of Acts is God's people don't see it as their main goal to get back to Jerusalem. In fact, the goal is that God's people would spread out from Jerusalem. And now instead of Jerusalem being kind of the goal, Jerusalem is a sending spot. And really, in many ways, Antioch has taken kind of the place as the new base for missionaries to be sent out. Not from Jerusalem as much as from Antioch. And so Paul's missionary journeys are going to start from this spot Antioch. So I think there's a, maybe on the next slide, there's a, a map. So, so that's kind of, if you, if you, most Bibles have a map in the back. So if you like, as we go through this, it's naming all these places, and maybe you're not familiar with, uh, you know, Middle East geography in the first century. So that's why a map at the back of your Bible might be helpful so you follow. You see Antioch there over on the right side of the screen. So that's where they're, that's where they're at now. If you look at verse 1, here's what it says. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. So the church in Antioch is bigger than the five people listed, but it's listing the name of five different men who have been given the role in the church as, and have the gift of prophecy and teaching. Okay? And it lists five of them, five men, and it's a pretty diverse group of people. There's a man named Barnabas, who we've already met in the book, and then some others that we haven't met. Simeon, who was called Niger, um, and and, and that, he was just called that because his skin was black, right? So, so Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Cyrene is in northern Africa. And then Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's an interesting guy to be a part of this group. He was a childhood friend or acquaintance of the king. 
King Herod, who was the uncle of the Herod that we read about in chapter 12. Okay? And then another guy that we have heard of a lot of, and that is Saul. So, interesting group of leaders here in this relatively diverse church in the city of Antioch. Verse 2 says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So assuming it's not just these five men, but the whole church gathered together, worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting was just refraining from food for a period of time in order to just seek the Lord. So that's what the church was doing. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And while they were doing that, the Holy Spirit speaks. Look, to what, look at this, verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we're not told by Luke whether the Holy Spirit speaking was something heard by everybody in the church or maybe just by those who were the prophets in the church hearing this word from God and then sharing it. Hey, the Holy Spirit just spoke and said, we are to take two of these men, two of the five leaders in the church there, Barnabas and Saul, and set them apart. They're going to be doing something different. Set apart for what purpose? Set them apart for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so that's the word that comes from God. Verse 3 then. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the call is to set apart two people from the church for the work to which the Holy Spirit's called them. The call comes from the Holy Spirit, but it comes through the church, okay? So from the Holy Spirit, through the church, the church is the one laying on of hands, worshiping, fasting, praying, and and they're sending them off, okay? So it says there, the church sent them off at the end of verse 3. What's the next step? Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So are these missionaries sent out by the Holy Spirit? Or are they sent out by the church? Yes. Right? They're sent out by the church in verse 3. And then in verse 4 it says they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. So we see missionaries being sent out by the church and by the Holy Spirit. And what does the church do? Look at verse 4. They, sorry, verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So Cyprus is still a nation today. It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea. So we've seen a lot of traveling on land for the gospel to get to new places, but this is like the first overseas missions work that's taking place, literally over the sea, like they have to get on a ship and go from the port there to this island nation of Cyprus, which is a part of the Roman Empire at the time. Interesting to note, I think it is good to note, all of the church is called to be missionaries in one way or another, right? But not everybody's called to go to a faraway place, right? The majority of the church in Antioch, what are they doing? They're, they're sending these missionaries. They're praying for them. They're worshiping the Lord. They're fasting. They're ready to send them out. But there are two in the church. And notice Saul and Barnabas. Think about this for a second. If you're in the church in Antioch and you've got Saul 
and Barnabas, two extremely gifted guys who have done a great deal of leading in the early church. Don't you kind of wait, like, I want them to stay in my church, right? Those are the kind of guys you want in your church. But instead, the church is sending out two of their best and brightest to do this work of ministry in these faraway, unreached places. So that's what they head out to do. Verse 5, when they arrived, and like some of you are seeing this and you're thinking about lunch, like salami, I like salami. Uh, it's probably pronounced salamis, okay? Um, and I don't think it has anything to do with the sandwich. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So John, we were introduced to him earlier as well. His, his full name was actually John Mark. Super confusing because, so, you know, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, so the book of John was written by John, right? And he also wrote the book of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He was one of Jesus' disciples. There's another guy who wasn't one of the original 12. His name is Mark, but his first name's actually John. His name's John Mark, uh, and they call him Mark probably to distinguish him. Here he's called John. Other places he's called Mark. He also wrote one of the Gospels, okay? So that's who we're talking about here. We don't hear too much about him except for he was with them. It seems that Saul is doing the majority of the teaching. Barnabas has this gift of encouragement, and Mark is assisting them. All right, so here's, here's what we're thinking. We get through verse 5, and here's what we're thinking. If we've been through the book of Acts, we're thinking, how's this going to go? What are they doing? They're doing what, what missionaries do. Did you notice what they're doing there in verse 5? They're proclaiming the word of God. That's first and foremost what a missionary does. Not, not, not first and foremost uh, doing work to, to care for the physical needs of others. Yes, that is part of what a missionary might do. But first and foremost, a missionary is proclaiming the word of God. And here's what we've seen in the book of Acts. When the word of God is proclaimed, sometimes it's awesome. It's proclaimed and we have seen thousands of people converted. Thousands of people born again through faith in Jesus in a single day when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And we've also seen the gospel proclaimed and people executed for it. So, so we should feel some tension as they are in this brand new place on this island in the Mediterranean proclaiming the word of God. How's it going to go for them? Is this, is this the time where all sorts of people come to faith in Jesus or is this going to be another time where people try to kill them? How's it going to go? I usually don't think that on a Sunday morning when I get up and preach a sermon to you guys, I would love to see hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus. There's only a hundred some here. I'd love to see one person come to faith in Jesus. I usually don't fear, is this the day they kill me? Right? But that's probably what Paul and Barnabas are thinking as they proclaim the word of God in that place. Is it going to be a welcome or some kind of opposition. Let's look. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. Oh, this is interesting. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, so it's really going to focus in on two characters. One is this magician, also a Jewish false prophet. Okay, he's the same, the same person. Bar-Jesus equals Jewish false prophet equals a magician. Okay, they're all the same guy, just descriptions of one guy. Verse 7 then says this. Here's the other guy. He was with the proconsul. That is a Gentile Roman official. Okay, so he works for the Roman Empire government. 
and he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. So you've got a Jewish false prophet magician, and you've got a Roman Gentile officer, and they're hanging out. Okay, kind of interesting. Verse 6, verse 7 now. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, so, so this is good news. This is interesting. Kind of a, usually, the gospel seems to go to kind of like the downcast and, and, the, and the... But here, you've got this man of intelligence, a Gentile Roman official, and he has heard that Paul and Barnabas and Mark are in town, and he actually invites them. I want to hear the word of God. What a great invitation, right? So they're being invited by this Gentile Roman official who's hungry to hear the word of God, they get invited. How's this going to go? Well, verse 8. But Elemas the magician, so that's the other name of Bar-Jesus. So it's all the same guy. Elemas, Bar-Jesus, magician, right? Jewish false prophet, all the same guy. Elemas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So it wouldn't have been rare, it was common for a person of high rank to have all sorts of advisors, and this Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, had chosen Bar-Jesus to be one of his advisors, a magician who would be able to maybe, you know, tell him some things about the future, kind of use his, his divine dark arts or something like that to try to tell him how he could better govern and that, that kind of stuff. But I think this magician has started to understand from what he's heard about this gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) If Sergius Paulus believes the gospel, I lose my job. Right? He's not going to care what I say anymore. And so he's trying to oppose Paul and Barnabas. So the question was, are they going to be invited and welcomed in so that people can hear the gospel? Or are they going to be rejected? Well, both, right? They're invited in by one man who wants to hear the word, but there's another man who wants to get in between them. Guy who wants to hear the gospel, people who know the gospel, and a guy gets in between them. All right, what do we do? What do we do with that? Let's flip ahead to verse 9. Verse 9 begins this way, but Saul, who was also called Paul, I want to pause there for a second, Saul, who was also called Paul, a lot of times, you, you may have heard, if you've been in the church for a while, like kind of this, well, Saul was a, a, a Jewish a Pharisee who persecuted the church, and then he was converted and became Paul. Not really, right? It, Saul and Paul are the same guy, but in chapter 9, this is a couple of years or a few years before chapter 13, Saul was converted. Saul, who persecuted the church, converted and becomes a Christian, and still, he's referred to as Saul. So he's converted and still referred to as Saul until he gets to this island that is under the rule of the Roman Empire, and it becomes a little more strategically advantageous for him to use the more Roman version of his name, Paul. Okay? So it's not that he like got converted and got a new name at the same time. No, it's his mission makes it a little more simple for him to minister to other people if he goes by the Roman version of his name, Paul, rather than the Jewish version 
of his name Saul. So here, all of a sudden, we're told Saul is, is also Paul. First time we see this. But Saul, who was also called Paul, and then it says this, filled with the Holy Spirit. Another quick note. One thing that we learn in the rest of Scripture is that anybody from the day of Pentecost on, which we saw in Acts chapter 2, anybody who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus, immediately upon their conversion, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself, God the Holy Spirit, dwelling in every single believer. That If you're like a seven-year-old believer or a 70-year-old believer, you don't like progressively get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, right? But there also are times in the New Testament that it talks about being filled with the Spirit. So there are times when the Holy Spirit, who dwells in believers, kind of fills them in a, in a certain way that they might obey and do something that God is calling them to do, that kind of in their own strength, that man, this, this, they need to be filled with the Spirit if they're going to do this. So we saw this earlier in Acts chapter 4. We see it again here in Acts chapter 13. So Paul, who already has the Holy Spirit, is now filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can do this. Look at what he does. Look at verse 9 or 10. He looks intently at the magician. In verse 10 he says this. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's not a very seeker-sensitive message or way to approach a non-believer, right? But what, why is Paul using those words? Well, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and not unlike Jesus. Do you remember, do you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 16? At the heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And right after Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to die and be raised from the dead, do you remember what the apostle Peter does? He says, no, 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 no. Not you, Lord. And you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Right? When somebody comes to stand in the way of people ready to receive the gospel, it demands a strong response. This is not like, Paul's not talking this way to everybody. He's often very gentle and kind in the way that he's talking. But here's a man bent on making sure that a guy ready to hear the gospel, the proconsul, this influential man ready to hear the gospel, he's asking for it. And when a man comes to stand in the way, this Jewish false prophet, this, this magician, Paul can look at this man filled with the Holy Spirit, looking at him intently and calling him a son of the devil, telling him he's full of all deceit and villainy, an enemy of all righteousness, right? So he's looking at him with these harsh words because he's standing in the way of the gospel going forward. He's not just raging incoherently because he's mad. In fact, the words that Paul is using, you could look back at Micah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and I think Paul was in Awana, and he memorized those verses. And he's just kind of using them now when he's talking to this magician. God's power is not only displayed by Paul's word, but also through the judgment that comes next. Look at what happens. We're still in verse 11 now. 
And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It's like a little foretaste of the judgment that comes on all those who would oppose the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they're unable to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where this guy is at. And so for a moment, he becomes blind as he seeks to stand in the way of the gospel going forward. God's power on display in judgment and God's power on display in salvation. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He hears the word of God, he sees the power of God on display, and this spiritually dead, even though he was very intelligent and powerful and influential, he was spiritually dead, separated from God by his sin but he hears the word of God, he sees the power of God on display, and he believes. I love watching how God works, saving people we wouldn't expect in places we wouldn't expect. And all of it started with the church and the Holy Spirit sending out two of their best people to be missionaries, to go literally overseas, filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking the word of God. Let me just be honest with you for a second about, uh, about preaching through these things. I, I told you when I started preaching through Philippians uh, this summer, that was a book that God has used in my heart, maybe more than any other book of the Bible. And I waited eight and a half years to preach it. And it was so simple for me to take, like to draw out application from that book. Because God was always just, I got to be honest, as we come back to Acts, I love the story of Acts. But I struggle a little more every week <laughs> coming before the church and saying, all right, so what? We, we saw what happened in history, and we can praise God, but what, what, what does that mean for us? So I'm going to be wrestling through. You can pray for me in that as I seek to preach through the rest of this book. But here's what, here's what I think I could draw right out of the text this week because of what's kind of unique about this text. It's this. As a church, I think we have only two real options. That is, we are either those who are sending out missionaries or the missionaries who are sent. You want to know what's really natural for us? Here's, here's what's natural. Here's what like all of us will do unless God moves us to do something different. All of us will focus on ourselves. That's really, really natural. It, like God saved me. I got my ticket to heaven, and now I'm going to get as comfortable as I can. The church is about me getting what I want, right? So I'm going to get as comfortable as I can, as secure as I can, until that day when I get to go be with Him. What's unnatural, or what I maybe should say what is supernatural, is this. Not giving 100% of our attention to our own little world, but having God open up our eyes to the world out there. Like I said, don't you think the church in Antioch would have loved to just have Paul and Barnabas hanging out with them? Like, let's just stay here. 
Don't you think? I mean, everywhere Paul has gone, it's like he gets run out of town and it's dangerous. But in Antioch, it seems pretty good. Like he could have lived the Antiochian dream right there in Antioch. It would have been just fine, it seems. What Paul is recognizing, this is not what Jesus died and rose again for. There's all sorts of people in the ends of the earth who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as a church in Antioch or as a church in Iowa Falls, we recognize that. Like we, The goal of our life is not just get as comfortable as we can until we get to go to heaven. No, it, it might mean that some from our church need to be sent out by the church and by the Holy Spirit to go overseas for long-term, full-time, global missions work. Here's the the numbers. They estimate there's about 17,406 people groups in the world, okay? And right now, the estimate is that 7,401 of them, that's 42% of the people groups on the face of the earth, are unreached. That is, they don't have enough people who have heard and believed the gospel that they will be able to act, actively um, share that with, with everybody in their, uh, in their own people group. So uh, I've mentioned before, one of the books that we use in our family for our family worship time, probably about once a week we go to this book, read about a, a people group, uh, and then pray for them. Uh, There's a book called Window on the World. I was just looking at one this week. We didn't do it as a family this week, but I was looking at it. I was reading about the Balak people, okay? The Balak people live primarily in Pakistan and a few of them also in Afghanistan and a couple of surrounding countries. There are 13 million people in this people group. So, so it's not just one nation, but they're a people group with their own language and their own kind of customs and culture. And, and what needs to happen is for the people in that many people in that people group to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus. The majority of them are Muslim. There are a few hundred Christians among 13 million people, okay? Uh, and so, so, like what this book then has is, here's some ways that you can be praying for those people. So that's like a kid's version of that. There's a couple of resources. If you're an adult, if you're like, well, hey, I want to be more aware of what's going on in the world. I want to at least be praying for unreached people groups, joshuaproject.net, and then Operation World. Two, two different resources kind of doing the same thing. Operation World, Joshua Project, both of them. You can get an app that has like an unreached people group of the day. Gives you a quick summary. Here's how I can pray for them, okay? So Joshua Project and uh, Operation World both do the same thing. This little book I was talking about, Window on the World. Global travel is way easier than it was in Paul's day right? As Paul is called by the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church to do the work of overseas missions, it's not easy. It's way easier today, uh, becoming more easier as, as the pandemic hopefully dies out soon, right? There's challenges for sure right now. But many years ago, here's, here's, uh, here's, here's what our church has done. I think it's... Uh, I think it's a privilege to be a part of a church that recognizes this and has been a sending church. You, you heard Mark praying earlier. And as Mark was praying for our global missions partners, he was praying for people that were a part of this church and then sent out by this church. Some of them, uh, all of them giving up a number of things, many sacrifices in order to do what the God called them to do. 
and some of them ministering in very dangerous places. I've been in communication with a couple of them this week, and, and I can't share because this sermon gets put on YouTube. I can't share details, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to get together as a church next week on Sunday morning. Worship service at 10.15 like usual, but if you could come early next week at 9.15, we're going to commit 45 minutes to be praying for our missions partners. I can share more information about what's going on uh, on the mission field in their area, in their cities, and that kind of thing when you come. Uh, But we're going to gather together about 45 minutes to pray. If you don't feel like praying out loud, you don't have to pray out loud. Just come and sit, hear what's happening, and then join us in prayer. But we want to be a church that is ready to send. And also, so, so we've done this, this has been over the course of a number of years, and the last time we did this was only about five years ago, when Mandy from our church, I mean, she was, you know, some of you kids, she was your Sunday school teacher. She worked here in town at Rock Run Elementary and at Micah, right? And then, as God clearly, uh, by the Holy Spirit and by the church, we recognized a, a call and equipping for full-time missions in Romania. She left her family here in Iowa and, and is living alone, well, with a team now, uh, over in Romania. Who's next? Like, it might be for you, like you hear this and God is stirring something up in you. Maybe you're not hearing like an audible, here's the Holy Spirit calling me to this. But it's a work of God. Maybe it's just kind of like some little nudge, some little like, is this, is this something God might be calling me to? I think the next step for you would be come and talk to the church. Right? It's, it's the leaders of the church that are doing the sending out here in Acts chapter 13. I think that's probably a pretty normal thing. I would love to have a phone call or somebody even before you leave today come and talk to me and say, like, God saved me and I'm, I'm wondering if he's calling me to global missions. There's some steps uh, we could encourage you to take along the way. But, but I think the options for us as a church is we're either the senders or we're the sent. There's opposition to the gospel. It takes many forms. And so the second application point is just this, praying for the sent, that God's power will be displayed. We saw God's power on display here. We don't know of any great uh, number of people coming to faith in Christ in Paphos on that day. What we know from this passage is we know one guy, right? But he was an influential guy, and who knows what God's going to do. God's power on display But also, when God's power is on display and people are coming to faith in Christ, there's going to be opposition. And so we, as a people, need to be regularly praying um, for our missions partners. Um, So join us next Sunday at 9.15 for that. I'm really looking forward to walking through uh, the rest of the book of Acts. As we see over and over again, Holy Spirit-empowered believers, filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that they're proclaiming the Word of God, And we see the gospel that started in Jerusalem, expanded to Judea and Samaria, and now expanding to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I I thank you um, that you are a God worthy of worship. And we know that we live uh, in a world in many ways opposed to you. We have hearts that are very naturally opposed to you. Even thinking of what Brandon read earlier from Isaiah chapter 6 in our memory verse from this week, when he said, here am I, send me after seeing your holiness. 
and acknowledging his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people, knowing he had no right to be in your presence, but, but you reaching out to do the work of atonement so that he was at a spot where he said, all right, then here am I, send me. God, if that's the work that you're doing in somebody in our church calling them, that they might say to you today, here am I, send me. I pray that you'd be preparing them for that, just like you were preparing Isaiah when you told him right after that, that you're going to talk to a bunch of people that are never going to hear. You're going to say stuff and they're not going to understand. They're going to reject you. God, we know that that's the reality in the world that we live in. Help us not to lose heart, but help us to be so motivated by your holiness that as we, people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation, anticipating, gathered together around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him because he alone is holy, because he alone is worthy of that worship, Help that to motivate our going out this week. And I thank you that we get a little taste of that. We know this is nothing like what's happening around the throne of Jesus, but we know that in in a sense we are gathered together with the angels and saints in heaven and with saints all around the world gathered together to worship Jesus on this day. And so as we sing a closing song, I pray that you give us even just a picture of of the much larger group gathered together around the throne of Jesus, singing praise to the one who alone is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen.